Good morning. The gospel reading this morning is from Luke chapter 13. Then Jesus asked, What is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. Again he asked, What shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dole. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, good morning again, everyone. It's great to be here with you, and we're continuing a study of the parables, and if you've been in the church, grew up the church, in the church, or just grew up in the United States, uh, some of these parables can seem so familiar. You've heard about the mustard seed thing and the leaven, and it seems like Christianity 101 gives you something deeper, something more comprehensive and bigger and challenging. But the parables really are 101. But they're also 201 and 301 and into graduate school. And for the rest of your life, if you enter into Christianity, these are the things, these concepts are the things that are going to be at the very center of your relationship with Jesus and his church and your biggest challenge to understand and not just understand but actually live it out. And that's why we're spending so much time in the parables and why we keep going back Uh, to the gospel stories and to the parables. And so let me just pray uh, for us real quick, and then we'll look at this together. God, I pray that what is familiar may be reinforced insofar as it points us to you, and what is familiar may become unfamiliar if it is something that we have taken for granted, that we don't see the import anymore. Father, I pray that it would catch us that you would catch us, that you would give us a glimpse of something different, something new, wherever we're coming from this morning, uh, lacking faith, looking in from the outside, wondering that this is a place we commonly find ourselves, but we still can't quite turn the corner on committing to you. Or if this is who we are, this is our life, this is the most significant thing that we do this week, I pray that you would meet us afresh and draw us into your life and your love. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's a famous study of rats that you probably have um, heard and recognized, and these rats are wired up with electrodes on their brains, and when they press a certain lever that's in the corner of their cage, they get a little hit of dopamine, and their brains light up, and they get this pleasure release. Wouldn't you love to have that little clicker around? Man, I'm feeling bad. Just click it. Maybe not, because what happens with the rats is kind of sad. Given a choice between food and dopamine, they'll take dopamine, often to the point of exhaustion and starvation. They'll even choose this little lever over sex. Some studies see the rats pressing the dopamine lever 700 times an hour. Sounds like addiction, right? Well, this comes from an article that I read, at least came into my mind, on uh, Medium 
Bookshop.com, and the author is lamenting the decline of reading in our current society, serious reading. And he's comparing our society, giving up on books as rats pressing levers. We'd rather have it quick. Give me the dopamine now. Give me the endorphins now. And he says, when I think back on my life, I can define a set of books that shape me intellectually, emotionally, spiritually. Books have always been an escape, a learning experience, a savior. But beyond this, certain books became a kind of glue that holds my life together and my understanding of the world. They, in ways that are different to visual art and music, to radio, to even love, force us to walk through another's thoughts, one word at a time, over hours and days. And we share our minds for that time with the writers. There's a slowness, a forced reflection required that is unique. Books recreate someone else's thoughts inside our own minds. And maybe it is this one-to-one mapping of someone else's words that give books their power. They're not just transfers of knowledge or even emotion, but a special kind of tool that flattens oneself into another, that enables the trying on of foreign ideas and emotions. Now, parables, like books are for this author, and maybe for you, are a special kind of tool that flatten us into another person's story and into an alternative reality. And it also, as the book or the writer also laments, it presses us into a different pace of life, of watching a slowly unfolding alternative reality that Jesus is calling here and elsewhere the kingdom of God, that that is what he has brought to bring, brought uh, in his coming. He is announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God, as we talked last week, is the world made right. It is God's healing and his personal love come near into the world and into our individual context. And when that happens, shame and sorrow and suffering and sin lose their significance as definers of our story and articulators of the future, they recede as God's kingdom presses in. But these two parables that were read a moment ago present a problem to us as readers because maybe we like that idea. It's a beautiful idea. But maybe you've asked at one time or another, if the kingdom has really come in Jesus, why is the world so ridiculously messed up still? Why is my life in such disarray if I claim to follow Jesus and the kingdom has shown up in him? And for some of you, this, these questions have caused a sort of spiritual fever. You're going to make it, but you're feeling bad. You feel the distress of these issues and the difference between what seems to be proclaimed and what you're experiencing. But then there are others of you that this, these questions present a sort of cancer, 
in your life. And either it's kept you from moving into the church because why would I believe something that's so obviously not true to daily experience? Or it's giving you consideration that maybe, maybe I should just put this on hold. Maybe I should walk away. Maybe I should just put this on the back burner because even if this is true, the world is still in disarray. And can I actually trust Jesus? Can I put my daily hopes in Him? And maybe it feels like a growing cancer in your lives. And Jesus tells these two parables because, believe it or not, none of these questions are new. They're, in fact, very ancient. They're questions that even his contemporary hearers had. And the parables are part of these books, these larger stories that are meant to be read slowly, that are meant to be pressed into our soul, that invite us to try on this foreign set of ideas and emotions and different pace of life in order to maybe bring down the temperature just a little bit if we have that fever that comes from constantly seeing things go wrong in our lives and in loved ones' lives, or maybe to apply some chemo to the cancer that we feel that is encroaching and maybe causing us to walk away or not even consider. We need to remember here, what does Jesus say the kingdom is like? Because part of understanding the story is setting expectations. The kingdom is like an explosion. The kingdom is like an eruption. The kingdom of God is like an earthquake. That's not the imagery. The imagery is a mustard seed. Very underwhelming. It's proverbial for smallness in Palestine at that time. A mustard seed, most seeds, are teeny tiny. They're diminutive. They're minuscule. They're Lilliputian. Sorry, I had a little fun on thesaurus.com this morning. But they're not very important or significant or powerful. And the same is true of leaven. For this amount used doesn't seem like much. It doesn't look like much. But in both of these images, there's untapped power. There's an extraordinary amount, amount of potential energy to produce growth that is far out of proportion to the size of the thing that Jesus is talking about, to the size of the thing in the beginning. And Jesus says it is these two things that my kingdom is like. And some of us, some of you, may not be very impressed with God right now. You may not be very impressed with what He's doing in your life. You expected healing quicker. You expected a job faster. You expected to get rid of this habit more quickly. And you're just not really impressed. I've got real problems, right? What is this story that's 2,000 years old going to do for me now? Or you're thinking, maybe from inside the faith, why does he seem so far away? 
Why can I not sense him in this moment of hardship and of crisis? Why does he not seem near if the kingdom is come? The kingdom seems so ephemeral. And maybe you look around at our church and you think, wow, we're not a very impressive place. And the things that we wish that, wish that we would see happen don't seem to happen ever, and certainly not quickly enough for our taste. We look at our life, we look at our marriage, we look at our spouse, we look at our own life, we look at our health, and we say, is this all there is? Is this all I can hope for? Is that it? And of course, I cannot possibly answer all of those questions in this morning, but by the way, we do this every week, and so you can come back because these are big concepts, and we'll keep talking about them. But think about a seed again. It's so small that you can pinch it between your fingers and almost not know that it's there. There's almost no weight, at least anything that we can sense. But if you put it into the ground, if you water it, if you wait, it can grow into something that absolutely towers over you. Think about the giant sequoia and redwood trees that all come from a seed of different sizes, but a seed just like the dogwood tree in my backyard comes from. There's power in a seed. There's life, potential energy in a seed. And then think about leaven. The amount here of flour is three measures, which is roughly about 50 pounds, and that's a big bag to carry around a flour. But it's no match for just a tiny bit of leaven. The leaven wins every single time. And so expectations are so important to the Christian journey. Maybe, and I submit this for your consideration this week, maybe you have a hard time believing in God because you already have bad theology. It seems sort of backwards, but maybe you're rejecting a God and rejecting a kingdom that doesn't exist and God has never claimed to exist. Maybe it's a caricature of what Jesus was promising. And maybe you struggle with that on the outside of faith or on the inside. And part of our job here is to go back into these stories and to let them press into us again and to give us right expectations, right theology. And then if you reject God and it's the God that actually exists and the God that's revealing himself to you, then at least you followed the truth where it actually leads. And you're not rejecting something that God never claimed to be. The kingdom of God is like a seed. It's like leaven. It looks small. It looks unpromising. It looks unimpressing, unimpressive. But smallness is not the same as powerlessness. They're not synonymous. Consider the first disciples that were walking around with Jesus and hearing these stories. They're not an impressive bunch at all. They're not the power brokers. They're not big shots. They're not all-stars. They're not LeBron James or Steph Curry. They're just Kevin, someone's dad with a beer belly down at LA Fitness shooting hoops. Those are the disciples, not Steph Curry. But when these guys 
when these 40-something washed-up athletes, when they hear the good news, it captures them. It grabs hold of them. And it radically changes them individually. And then it radically changes these small communities that continue to gather even though Jesus dies. And in a few generations, those no, nobodies multiply, and these communities multiply until such a, is that the whole Mediterranean basin has churches planted that are saying, this is the story that we want to live by. In spite of the danger, this is the narrative. And it wasn't one miracle after another. It wasn't big stadium events. It wasn't flashy at all. But people living by a different story gathered into small communities where the good news and the life and the work of Jesus leaked out into their families and their workplaces and into their cities. You see, so many things that are a part of our life, that are part of living in God's kingdom, seem so small. They seem insignificant. They seem powerless, but they're not. Think about the act of forgiving a person who has hurt you deeply because you begin to reflect upon the forgiveness that God has shown you. Think about beginning to pray with eyes that see the world outside and not just praying incessantly for the things that you want, the things that you feel like you need. Think about beginning to rest into a pace of life that reflects these ideas, that reflects a trust in something that is unseen. Think about how big that is. Think about how much power it takes for one life to begin to go slightly against the grain and say, I will choose to not keep running. I will choose to reflect. I will choose to observe. I will choose to not simply pursue the next promotion so I can have more money, but maybe I need to stay here so that I can give more time to something else. Think about the power that it takes some of you this morning where depression has settled in like a fog, where maybe you've been wounded by a previous church or a previous pastor, and yet you got up this morning and you showed up here. And friends, that is courageous, and that's powerful. It seems small, and we probably tell ourselves that our Acts of courage are not that significant, but they are. They really are. And I know a lot of your stories. And I meet with so many of you. And there is admittedly some lasting defeat and there's lasting heartache and there's fogs that just seem like they won't go away, but there's also so many stories of courage and there's so many stories of daring and so many stories of forgiveness, and so many stories of healing where God's kingdom is beginning to move into your life and the darkness is receding, if only a little bit, and it's not small, and it's not insignificant. 
one step towards someone in hopes of reconciliation is huge. One whispered prayer of gratitude is gigantic. One act of resistance against injustice that may cost you something is enormous. These things are not small. Choosing not just to race through life, but to sit in the moment that God has you now, as painful as it might be, in order to ask, what do I need to see? Where is God in this moment? Making those choices are huge. And I want you to know that as you do those things, that God smiles upon you because they're, they take gigantic courage. And these small things change lives. And they change churches. And they change communities. And if you extrapolate that downstream, they change the world. They really do. It's like a seed going into the ground that looks and feels insignificant but grows into something that is lasting and enormous. So how do we respond? Just a couple of quick thoughts and we'll be done. On one hand, all of this should make us extraordinarily humble because we don't know the full story. We don't know fully what God is doing in our midst right now. We can't oftentimes see the forest for the tree that's right in front of us. And we should be humble because we're not omniscient. It may be this week where right now you're sitting thinking, I'm sure I'm glad that my life is not who he's talking about right now. My life is not in despair. My job is solid. My marriage is good. I like my roommates. But it may be this week where you get a pink slip. It may be this week where that routine appointment with the doctor has some bad news attached to it. And we don't know why God does the things that he does at the granular level. And it should humble us. But on the other hand, we should leave here encouraged. It should strongly encourage us because God is at work. If we believe this story, he is planting seeds in terrible places and in stories of heartache, in hopeless situations, and in the long, lingering difficulties that you and I go through. And it's maybe not how fast, it's maybe not how we would want God to work, but He is doing something, friends, behind the scenes. And it's something that over time is so much far more magnificent than we could ever comprehend. And maybe that's cold comfort because life is hard, and it is. But sit long enough to ask God, what is he doing? And be a part of a community that can help you shoulder the burdens and can help you see those things because we can't always see it on our own. We don't know everything, but we do know one thing. And that one thing is that even if it's not moving as fast or in the way that you want, that God is at work and that his kingdom is a kingdom of love. And it's a kingdom that somehow fits into his plan of bringing healing and delight and beauty into our world in a way that we are powerless to do so 
and in a way that we couldn't and wouldn't have drawn up if we were the architects. So let's lean into this week. Let's come to this table with hope that that can be true for our individual lives as well as for this church and for our city and for our world. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would find moments of transcendence in our lives for all of us who are hurting this morning, for all of us who have uncertainties in our life, and we all do. I pray that we could see the clouds parting just enough to get a glimpse of your love and of your presence and that you are for us and not against us. Father, I pray that we would reflect more and more on hope and not upon what maybe we have done wrong, that we would not see you as a vindictive God and see you in every little thing that is difficult as punishment. That We would not look upon the state that we are in with shame or with guilt, but that we would see your love opening up new solutions and new pathways for us as individuals, for families, for friendships. And Lord, I pray it for this church that you would open up a place of transcendence, a place of hope, a place where we see you moving in a new and a fresh and a lasting way. And we pray in your son Jesus' name. Amen.